Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Several years ago, I decided to organize a small luncheon with a handful of pastors in our city. All these pastors had various successful, relatively successful churches, but a lot of these pastors didn't know each other. They at least didn't know each other very well. So I wanted to get them all together for lunch where we could sort of develop friendships with each other and hopefully where greater partnerships and kingdom unity could happen as a result of us sort of knowing each other a little more better. And, and, and I had no idea how it would go. I mean, pastors can be a weird bunch. So I, I had no expectations about the event. I just figured I'd see what would happen. Really, to my surprise, the, the lunch went pretty well. Conversations were happening. Friendships were forming. There was even some loving, poking fun at each other, which is my personal love language, just to be honest. So I decided while they were all talking, while the conversation was rolling, that I would just sneak up to the counter and pay for everybody's meal. And as I made my way up to the counter, I I could almost feel the self-congratulatory thoughts entering my mind, right? Way to go, Kent. Look at what you're doing here. I mean, this is really something impressive. I mean, who else would get these pastors together and just have such a kingdom mindset in their heart? Who else would do this other than you? You truly are the hero that Gotham needs and wants. (laughs) You know the typical things that you say to yourself sometimes. Now, I'm not saying I should have thought those things. I'm just saying that I did. I was under the impression that this was a safe place. Hopefully, that's still true for me as well. These were the types of things going through my head as I headed up to the counter to pay for the meal. So I paid for the meal. I get back to the table, and a few minutes later, all the pastors start to get up from the table. They continue their conversations all the way to their cars. They exchange contact info with one another and head home. Nobody thanks me for the lunch at all. And and not only that, they didn't even realize that they hadn't paid for the lunch. They were criminals, really, in that moment. And they still hadn't thanked me for setting up the lunch or paying for it. And, and I remember, if I'm just completely honest, as they kind of sped off in their respective cars, I, I remember feeling deeply offended, and, and if I'm honest, a, a little bit disappointed, quite disappointed, in fact. I, I remember thinking to myself, and I'm really not proud of this thought, but I remember thinking to myself precisely, well, that was a waste of time and money. And just like that, the Holy Spirit taught me a very important lesson, a lesson about doing the right things for precisely the wrong motive. In that moment, he showed me that in my heart, at least, that luncheon was less about me unifying these pastors in our city and was more about me being seen as the pastor who unifies pastors in our city. And those really are two very different things. And that really is what our passage is about today. It's a passage about the dangers 
of doing the right things with the wrong motive, of, of doing good things for a bad reason, in essence. Today, our plan is to cover the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6. If you want to go ahead and turn there, if you're not there already, you can. Matthew chapter 6 is where we'll be. And if 18 verses sounds like a lot for us to cover in one teaching, it's because it is a lot for us to cover in one teaching. To my knowledge, I think this is the longest passage that we've covered in the book of Matthew so far, and maybe even the most verses we've ever covered in one single Sunday teaching. But here's why I have faith that we can make it happen. Here's why I have faith that we can make it all the way through these verses. Because even though there are 18 verses in front of us, there is really just one very simple, very straightforward point that Jesus makes several different times. He has one central idea that he then illustrates in three different scenarios. And the big idea that he's trying to get across, we find articulated very plainly in verse one. So take a look there with me, if you will. It'll also be up on the screen. Verse one says this. Beware, says Jesus, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. There's our concept. If we get what Jesus means by that one verse, we understand what he's trying to say for the rest of this passage. So let's figure out what he means in that one verse. First, what does it mean to practice one's righteousness? The word righteousness in Jesus' vocabulary involved doing anything that was right from God's perspective. So it's a pretty broad word, to be honest. But then he mentions a few specific examples of righteousness in the verses that follow. Two of them are prayer and fasting. Those would be considered practicing righteousness both then and today. So if we were making a list today, we would probably also loop in things like reading and studying our Bibles, practicing the Sabbath, a day of rest once a week, things like generosity towards other people, things like attending a corporate worship gathering like the one we're at right now, things like relationally investing in other followers of Jesus, what we often call discipleship around here. All of that would be included in what Jesus describes as righteousness. But we also mentioned several weeks back in this series that righteousness in Jesus' mind also included a lot of what we would call justice today, or maybe even social justice today. Things like speaking up on behalf of the marginalized and oppressed, raising a voice for the unborn, tangibly helping those who are racially discriminated against or discriminated against in other ways. Jesus even highlights one type of practice like this right here at the beginning of Matthew 6. He mentions giving to the poor. So in Jesus' day, there were no state-run welfare systems in place, so the poor and the marginalized, if they were going to be cared for in tangible sorts of ways, it was probably going to happen through the local community of believers. So Jesus says all of those things are also included in what he considers and describes as righteousness. So all of that is in Jesus's mind, and probably more things than that, but that covers a lot of it, probably. All of that is included when Jesus says practicing righteousness, which means all of that is also included in Jesus's warning that he gives to people in this passage. So let's talk a little bit about the specifics of this warning that he offers. 
Jesus says, quote, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people that you may be seen by them. So a couple important clarifications first on what Jesus is not saying. And I think this is really important so that we don't get the wrong idea of what he's trying to communicate. Two things that Jesus isn't saying. First, he doesn't say beware of practicing righteousness. He doesn't say beware of practicing righteousness. He doesn't stop it there. Nor would he say something like that. In fact, if you remember back from the last chapter of Matthew, chapter 5, Jesus actually makes righteousness a requirement for entering and being a part of the kingdom of God. And in these 18 verses that we just read, he's going to say over and over again, when you practice these things, when you pray, when you fast, when you give to the poor, not if you do those things, but when. Jesus assumes that people will participate in practicing righteousness. He's a big fan of that. And the reason I bring that up, the reason I think it's worth pointing out, is because in some Christian circles, it seems like we've turned righteousness into a bad thing. So sometimes we call it by its other name in the Bible, good works. And so a lot of times in in certain types of churches and certain types of followers of Jesus, we'll warn each other about righteousness. We'll say things like, hey, be careful about good works, brother. Watch out for good works. It's almost like we think good works, like righteousness is something to be scared of. Now, I, I understand that on some level. There is a danger, to be sure, of defining yourself by your good works rather than understanding who Jesus is and what he's done for us. I understand that. But righteousness in and of itself is is a great thing. Righteousness in and of itself is something we're called to pursue over and over again in the New Testament. It's going to say that we were saved by God in order to do good works. That was actually one of the primary purposes in Jesus rescuing us out of our sin. Just as an example of the sort of negative mindset towards works, I had a buddy in college who really struggled to regularly spend time in the scriptures each day. And so at one point, he asked us, some of his roommates, to check in with him to see how he was doing with that stuff. And so one day I remember asking him, hey, were you able to get some time in the scriptures this morning? And his response to me was, well, I thought about it, but when I woke up, I didn't really want to read the Bible, and so I decided it would be legalistic if I read the Bible. I think that's sort of the mindset that a lot of us have towards good works if we're not careful. In his mind, the danger, the the thing to be on guard against was not a heart that didn't desire Jesus. In his mind, the danger was that he might do something that he didn't feel like in the moment. But Jesus has a very different mindset towards righteousness, towards good works. He would actually say we are called to do good works, which is why he doesn't say beware of practicing your righteousness. The other thing he doesn't say, and this is, this is subtle, but I need you to understand it. The other thing he doesn't say is beware of practicing righteousness before others. He doesn't stop it there either. He doesn't say, he's not trying to communicate, hey, you should never do good things in public when other people can see it. That, that wouldn't even really make sense. So we're, we're getting ready to tell you guys at the end of the service, we're gonna do a night of prayer and worship early next week. If it's wrong or sinful to pray in public, that would be a very pointless event to host, right? And maybe even a wrong event for us to host. So Jesus is not trying to say 
that it's wrong to do righteous things in front of other people, period. He's not trying to say it's, it's wrong for people to be aware that you're fasting or that you're giving to a certain cause. Jesus actually lets people know often that he is praying in the Bible. And again, back in chapter 5, it's even going to say, and this might throw some of us for a loop, in chapter 5, he says, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works, that's the same word as righteousness there, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven before others, he says. So the problem isn't even in just us simply doing righteous things in front of other people. That's not what he's warning against either in this passage. The warning that Jesus gives, what he does say, is not to do good things in front of others for the purpose of being seen by them. His concern is not with doing righteousness or, or even with where we do righteousness, it's with why we do righteousness. That's Jesus' concern in this passage. That phrase, to be seen by others, in Matthew 6. In the Greek, that's actually just one word. It's the word theothenai. It's where we get the word theater. And it means quite literally to put on a show or a spectacle for other people. It's when you do something for the express purpose of being noticed or recognized or applauded by an audience. It's me paying for lunch with the other pastors in our city. That's the thing that Jesus warns against. Not righteousness in general and not even righteousness in public, but theatrical righteousness. Making, the, making righteousness into something we do in order to be recognized when that is our primary motive to be noticed by others doing those things. And Jesus actually assigns a name to people who regularly practice this type of theatrical righteousness. He uses it several different times in this passage. So take a look with me at a few different excerpts, starting in verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets. Verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. And then again in verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So to the people that do their righteousness, that practice their righteousness in order to be seen by other people doing it, Jesus calls them hypocrites. Now, to me, this is really interesting, may not be interesting to you guys, but we're going to try it anyway. Uh, this is really fascinating how Jesus uses this word, because at the time that Jesus lived, the word hypocrite was not really an insult or a knock like it is in our society today. It was, it was a very neutral word. It was actually another term derived from the world of theater. Generally, actors in a play at that time would wear masks to portray their various characters in the production. And the word that referred to an actor wearing a mask was the word hypocrite, or where we get our word hypocrite. And best we can tell, Jesus was actually the first person in history to take that word, hypocrite, and to use it to call out a negative type of behavior in other people. He originated that use of that word in that way. So all of that to say, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, and the thing that gets on your nerves the most about followers of Jesus is that they're hypocrites, 
that they, they demonstrate hypocrisy, you should know Jesus is actually not a fan of it either to the point that he started using that word in that way to call it out in other people. The word hypocrite is actually a frequent knock that Jesus uses against the religious elite of his day. So Jesus' point in using the word hypocrite here is that when we behave in this way, when we participate in theatrical righteousness, it's like we too are putting on a mask. It's like we're walking up in front of people and we're taking righteousness and instead of it overflowing out of who we are, it's a mask that we put on in the moment. And Jesus' point is that that is no way to go about being his disciple. But that's not what it looks like to follow Jesus at all. So the question then for us to wrestle with today is, are there any ways that we engage in this sort of theatrical righteousness? Are there ways that, that we actually demonstrate hypocrisy, practicing our righteousness before others in order to be seen by them? So think back over our list from earlier, the different things that we rattled off, prayer, fasting, Bible reading, attending worship gatherings, discipling other people, whatever it is for you, are there any of those arenas in your life where there is a disconnect between your public passion about those things and your private commitment to those things? Is there anywhere where there's a disconnect between how publicly excited you get about those things and, and what people would observe you doing in regards to those things in public and how much time and effort and energy you actually expend when nobody else is around towards those very same things? Is there a disconnect anywhere in your life? So the people in your life that view you as spiritually mature in any of those areas, people that see you as a passionate worshiper or a well-versed Bible reader or a knowledgeable disciple maker or any of that, would those same people be confused if they had a 24-7 glimpse into your life? if they saw the ways that you participated or don't participate in those things when other people are around? Would they be confused if they saw your private commitment to those things compared to your public enthusiasm about them? So the people that view you maybe as a person who is passionate about prayer, passionate about seeking the face of God through prayer, would they be confused if they got a 24-7 look at your personal prayer life or, or lack of a prayer life? The people that see you here on Sundays with hands lifted in worship to Jesus, would, would they be surprised if they had a full glimpse into the types of things that your time and your energy and your money go to on a regular basis? Because you know those things are what we worship too. Those things reveal what we worship too. Are there any areas where people, if they had a 24-7 glimpse into our life, they would spot a sort of misalignment between our public righteousness and our private righteousness? So I'll tell you for me, this week as I was wrestling through this passage and just praying through it, I'll tell you what I was convicted of through this passage. I felt like the Holy Spirit showed me that often, I will work a lot harder to study and glean from a passage when it's one that I'm going to be teaching to you guys. 
I work a lot harder to research it and find out what a bunch of different people say about it and to really make sure I'm getting at the heart of the passage when I know I'm going to be teaching it to you guys than when I'm just studying it for myself. Now, there's some of that that is probably okay, right? Obviously, the stakes are higher in what I communicate to you guys than just me alone. And so it might be good to some degree that I'm researching those things a little bit more. But if I'm not careful, that can easily become theatrical righteousness, it can easily become this thing where I'm, I'm curating a certain image of me as somebody who knows the scriptures and knows how to apply the scriptures and knows clever things to say about the scriptures and is failing to apply those things to my own heart and my own life. I can very easily become wearing a mask, being a hypocrite, practicing theatrical righteousness. So that's the type of thing we're asking here. That's the sort of thing we need to be wrestling through when we read Jesus say things like he says in Matthew 6. Is there anywhere in our life where that is true of us? Where, where our righteousness in public does not match our righteousness when nobody is looking. So I will say with this, don't forget also to loop in the justice side of righteousness so the people who scroll through your social media feeds on a regular basis, the people that see you raising a voice or raising awareness about any number of different social issues that you're passionate about, would any of them be surprised if they found out how little time, effort, and energy you actually put into fighting those issues? Would any of them be surprised to, to know that really the stuff you post on social media is about as far as it goes? I remember just this past summer, there was a, I think just one day right after the killing of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, when a lot of people posted those black squares to Instagram. Do you guys remember this? I think it was on Instagram. It might have been on Facebook too. People posted these black squares on their social media feeds. And it was this black square accompanied by a caption that said something like, I'm listening. And it was meant to communicate, that it was meant to, a way to publicly say that we are listening to the voices of people of color throughout our country when they say that they are being discriminated against. So it was this fantastic thing to do. I, I posted it on my feed. I know a lot of you guys did too, and I think that's fantastic. But as I saw hundreds, thousands, millions of people posting these black squares to their social media feeds. I, I think a lot of people of color in our country looked at those and saw people say, I'm listening, and maybe thought, but are you, though? Are you listening? Or is this just a popular thing to do right now? Are you just doing it because you want to be seen as the type of person who listens and not necessarily because you want to be a person who listens. And listen, I will repeat on all of this, the problem isn't that we're doing righteous things. That's not Jesus's point. That's not the problem. The problem isn't that we're posting things like that on our social media feed. The problem isn't that we are publicly calling for justice in our society. The problem isn't that we're showing up here and we're passionately worshiping Jesus on Sundays. The, the problem is not us doing any of that. In fact, Jesus' point is that we should do things like that. We should be regularly involved in all of those things and more. So, so the solution is, is not to stop praying. 
It's not to stop worshiping. It's not to stop reading your Bible. It's not to stop speaking out against injustice. And it's not even to stop doing those things in public settings. The solution is to make sure our private commitment to those things mashes our public enthusiasm about them. That's the solution. That's what Jesus is pushing for here. The the solution is to make sure that our good works, our righteousness come from an overflow of what's in our heart and not in the form of a mask that we put on when the right mood hits us. So next, I I just want to ask, what is the danger of theatrical righteousness? What's the risk at the end of the day if we are mainly concerned with how other people see us we're mainly concerned with how we are perceived, with other people's approval, what's the danger in that? Jesus actually answers that question in our passage. He again repeats it several times throughout the passage, and it's subtle, but I think it's worth mentioning. Take a look at a few different verses with me in the passage again. We'll put these up on the screen. Verse 2 says this, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, and here's the important part for what we're talking about, they have received their reward. Again, in verse 5, it says, Again, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray where other people can see them. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. One more time in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They, they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So here's the problem with doing good things primarily to be seen doing them. That's your only reward. That's it. That's as good as it will ever get for you. That momentary rush that you get when people notice you, that temporary boost in self-esteem, that hit of dopamine when somebody sees what you did, that is as far as it will go. And there's no use in lying about it. That feels good, right? It feels good when people notice us doing good things. I think we can admit that that feels good on a sort of visceral soul level to some degree. That is indeed a reward, which is probably why Jesus calls it a reward. But at the same time, if we're honest, I bet we would also admit that we usually put an awful lot of effort in to obtain a little bit of reward, maybe even a disproportionate amount of effort. Some of us have spent our entire lives working tirelessly just to hear the occasional good job from another person or hear the occasional good job from a specific person or a specific group of people in our lives. And maybe you've hit moments where you have achieved that, where you were on top of the world because you had so many people speaking well of you, so many people recognizing you, so many people praising you, and it felt fantastic in the moment. But at the same time, it never really lasts, does it? Do you want to know how I know it never lasts? Because we never stop chasing it. I'm speaking to me now. I never stop chasing it. I would bet there has never been a moment in your life or mine where we went, you know what? I think after those people recognizing that one thing I just did, I think I'm good on human approval for the rest of my life. 
I don't think I need it anymore. I think I'm all set. That moment has never occurred for us because the approval of people never seems to last. It cannot provide enduring joy, enduring self-esteem. It cannot provide that. It wasn't designed to. You will always need more. And going back to our passage, I find it so interesting that Jesus' warning against living that way for the approval of other people, his warning against it is not severe. He doesn't threaten hell or lightning bolts from the sky, none of that. He just says, if you live your life for the approval of other people, that is all you will ever get. You have already received your reward. So how does it feel? Does it feel like you finally have what you've always wanted? Or does it feel like probably tomorrow morning you'll just wake up and start the pursuit all over again? You'll chase it all over again. Like you're probably gonna spend the rest of your life chasing after that momentary feeling of recognition from other people. And listen, this is, this is true whatever stage of human approval you happen to be standing on at the moment. Whatever method you use to garner up the praise and approval of other people, it will never be enough. You will never do enough good things. You will never be seen as spiritually mature enough by enough people. You will never speak out against enough social issues. You will never get enough praise from others to feel like you can stop. There will always be more to do. There will always be another person to gain the recognition of. There will always be another injustice to correct. It's an exhausting treadmill to be on. There will never be a moment where you think I'm good now. Theatrical righteousness won't let you do that. If you live by the approval of other people, you will die still wondering if you have it. The danger, Jesus says, in theatrical righteousness is that you will spend your whole life living for the wrong reward. So the question that leads us to is what should we do instead? What should, what should we be seeking instead of human approval? Well, Jesus is actually very straightforward about this. He says the only way to fight against this type of performancism is to stop performing. If your tendency is to do all kinds of things to be seen by other people, the only way to fight that temptation is to starve it out in your heart. Choose regularly to do those things where they can be seen by no one except God himself. Again, Jesus hits this point several times in the passage. Take a look at these verses up on the screen. First, verses three and four. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse six. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verses 17 and 18, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So do you see the pattern here? Jesus says the trick to fighting against theatrical righteousness is to get out of the theater. It's to make a conscious, consistent effort to do these same things, practice the same righteousness in secret where only God sees you do it. 
He even uses this interesting phrase, I think, back in verse 3. He says, do it such that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. In other words, do do your righteousness, practice your righteousness in such a way that even you don't fully realize that you're doing it. Now, I think it's easy for some of us to read that and go, what? (laughs) Like, how in the world would I do something and not know that I was doing it? That seems impossible. Think about it like this. Have any of you ever had this experience? Have you ever gotten in your car to drive somewhere that you go all the time, class, work, something like that, friend's house that you go to a lot, gotten in your car and the next thing you know, you're at your destination and you have no clue how you got there? And if you're like me, have a brief moment of panic where you're like, I hope I didn't cause any accidents. Because I don't remember stopping at any red lights. I don't even remember looking at any red lights, to be honest. Have you ever had that experience? So what's happening there is that you have done something so many times in your life. You've done the same thing so many times in your life that your brain is not actively processing that you're doing it. It's essentially muscle memory. Your brain processes all those decisions, all those turns that you have to make almost subconsciously without you actively thinking about it because you've become so accustomed to doing it. I think that is a picture of what Jesus is describing here. I think Jesus is saying that, that there is a way to practice righteousness, to do righteousness so often and so frequently in your life that eventually it just becomes instinctive to who you are. It just overflows out of who you are. It's not something you have to actively process in a lot of ways. It just happens because it is innate to your very personality, to your very character. And often what happens is that then doing righteousness becomes second nature to you, to where even your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. I want to tell you a story about uh, somebody that I know that I think is an example of this Uh, Maybe the best example of this that I've ever met. I want to tell you a story about a guy named Steve. So Steve is actually the late father of one of our city church members. But while he was alive, Steve was one of the most generous people I have ever known. The crazy thing is that while a lot of us knew that Steve was generous, we honestly had no clue how generous he was. And then when he passed away, all these stories just started coming out of the woodwork where we really got an even fuller picture of how generous he was as a human being. One of my favorite stories about Steve came from a friend of mine named Adam. And at one point, Adam's AC unit on his house had gone out in the middle of summer. Uh, They lived in Columbia, South Carolina, which if you know anything about Columbia, South Carolina, that is not where you want your AC unit to go out in the middle of summer. His AC unit had gone out. He and his family had no idea how they were going to pay for it. I mean, it was just an astronomical amount of money for them. I think it was something like $19,000 at the time to fix it or to replace it. So one night, while they were just sort of trying to figure out how in the world they were going to pay to have their air conditioning replaced, none other than Steve shows up on their front steps, knocks on the door, Adam opens the door, and and Steve shows up, hands Adam an envelope. And he says, Adam, I was thinking the other day about how difficult life was when I was in my 30s. 
He said, the kids were small, none of us were getting much sleep, and we didn't have a ton of money to speak of either. But when I was in my 30s, I put aside some money. I invested some money for the future. And the other day, I felt like God was telling me to give you some of it because I realized that you're in your 30s, and I wonder if life is difficult for you right now too. Knew nothing about the AC unit. Closes the door, drives off. Adam opens the envelope. It was a check for exactly $19,000. Now, as incredible as that story is, here is what I found even more amazing about it. A year or two later, Adam and Steve were hanging out. I think they were grabbing lunch one day. And Adam mentioned something about that $19,000 that he had been given by Steve. And while he was telling Steve about it, Steve just stared at him blankly. And Adam, was, Adam just thought he had zoned out or something. And he was like, hey, man, I, I want to make sure you hear me. That was so helpful for my family. Like, I don't know what we would have done without that money. That was such an incredible thing that you did for us. And, and Steve said, no, I, I heard you. I'm just sitting here trying to remember what you're talking about. Are you sure it was me? And Adam was like, yes, I'm sure it was you. I don't forget the face of a man who gives me $19,000. Like, I, I know for a fact it was you. And Steve says, well, I'm glad it was helpful, but to be honest, I do not remember having done that. Now, you could just chalk that up to Steve having a bad memory. Maybe that was it. But you know what I think could happen? I think generosity and a kingdom heart was so persistently integrated into Steve's life. It was such a regular part of who he was that he often forgot having done it. I think he had grown so accustomed to practicing righteousness on a regular basis that now at times his left hand didn't know what his right hand was doing. For Steve, giving to people that needed it was sort of like driving his car to work. It was him doing it. He put forth the effort to do it, but he often didn't remember doing it because it was such a common practice in his life. And I think that is a picture of what we're going for. I think that's what Jesus is setting forward in this passage. I think that's the kingdom heart that Jesus wants to create in each of us in this room. And the reality is that getting to that point, getting to the level where where we don't even think about having done some of those things, we don't even remember having done them, the reality is that that just takes practice. The way we get there, the way we obtain that sort of kingdom heart towards people around us is through one small secret act of righteousness at a time. Doing what is good and what is right in what Jesus calls the secret place, the place where only our Father sees it. And according to Jesus, where he alone, God alone, rewards us for it. So briefly before we're done, I just want us to talk for a second about this idea of God rewarding us. It's an idea that Jesus mentioned several times in the passage. This idea of God rewarding us for good things. Because I know for a lot of us, depending on what church tradition you came from, it might be an easy idea to get hung up on a little bit. I grew up in a church tradition that did not talk much about God rewarding us because it felt theologically weird to talk about. Like we, we spent a lot of time talking about how salvation is a free gift and it's only earned through what Jesus did on the cross. And so then to say that, that Jesus and, and God the Father rewards people just felt like an odd thing to talk about. 
So just to clarify here, to make sure we're all on the same page, Jesus is not saying that if you do good things, God will reward you with salvation, okay? That's not Jesus' point at all. In fact, the assumption here is that you are already a part of God's family, that that's already true of you, hence him calling God your father in the Lord's Prayer earlier in the passage. So the assumption here is that you already realize you are accepted by what Jesus accomplished on the cross. You're already accepted by God based on what he did there and not based on anything that you do. But here's the thing. This crazy thing starts happening when you realize that you're accepted by God no matter what, and that's that you start wanting to make your father smile. You start wanting to make your father smile. You you start wanting to do things that please him, that make him happy, that that bring him joy. That's the nature of a good relationship between a son or a daughter and a father. So let me try to explain it like this. I know I've mentioned several times before, we have a four-year-old boy named Wit. Um, Just about a year and a half ago, Wit became a big brother to a sister named Nora. And for the first year or so of his life, Wit was not the biggest fan of Nora. That may come as a shock to you. Uh, He wasn't against her as much as he just kind of treated her like she was an alien. So he was like, I'm fine that she's here just so long as I don't have to go near her or interact with her in any way at all. And as long as she doesn't touch my toys. That's, That's really the only thing that matters right here. So for the first year or so of her life, we had to really work with Wit to understand the role of a big brother and to really grow into that role of a big brother. And as a result, over the past year, he really has grown into that role. So he will now do things for Nora, he'll give her hugs, he'll check on her when she gets hurt, all sorts of great things for a big brother to do. And at least a lot of the time when he does something good for Nora, you know what he'll do? He'll turn to me and go, Dad, did you see that? Did you see what I did for her? I picked up her toys for her. I handed her that thing she wanted. I got her a snack. I could have pushed her down, but I didn't. <clears throat> All of these things. And it's like he, he wants me to see what he did. Now, here's the thing. He, he's not doing that. He's not asking me to look at what he does because he thinks I will kick him out of the house if he doesn't do those things right? Like, that's not Wit's heart at all. Like, if you walked up to Wit sometime when you see him and, and, and said, hey, Wit, why do you do good things for your sister? I highly doubt he would say, well, my dad has made it very clear that if I don't, I'll be begging for money out on the streets. That's not how Wit processes that. That's not how he thinks. That's not his motivation in doing any of those things. Rather, Wit understands that not only is being a good big brother the right thing for him to do, but also that being a good big brother makes his father smile. And because he's my son, he wants me to smile. He wants to bring me joy. He wants to bring me laughter and happiness. That's who he is because of the stability of the relationship. So he doesn't do it because his status in the family depends on it. He he does it because his status in the family is secure And as an established member of the family, he wants to make other members of the family smile. He wants to bring them joy, and he does just that. And the reason I I bring it up in that way is because I don't know that some of us have ever considered that the Father smiles at us. 
Like, I don't, I don't know if you understand that, that right now, in this moment, if you are in Christ, when the Father sees the things that you do for the kingdom and the things you do for other people and the things you do to pursue a lasting relationship with him, do you see him as smiling at you? I don't know if I do. I, I think I instinctively see the Father most times as, as just kind of this, well, good job, you did what you were supposed to do, way to go. That's not the Father's posture towards us. Through Jesus, the Father smiles at us. He's pleased with us. Listen, even when you do the right thing and it doesn't have the impact you thought it would, even when you do something, you try to do something big, something great, and you fall right on your face, do you understand in that moment the Father smiles at you as if you had succeeded? The Father sees us that way because of Jesus. And I think because some of us fail to see God in that way, we fail to view God's posture towards us in that way, I think that's the reason we're constantly trying to make other people smile at us. Because we think that's the only place it can be found. It's like we're operating functionally as an empty cup, continually needing another person to, or other people to fill us or, or, or to fill us up with their approval and their recognition and their applause. We're constantly needing them to do it because we see ourselves as an empty cup. And we'll do whatever it takes for them to notice. We'll do whatever it takes for them to look at us and say that we're doing something right because we feel completely empty at a soul level but what I'm here to tell you today is that what is offered to each of us through the good news of Jesus is a father who accepts us freely based on the cross and who smiles at you constantly. Even when you fail, even when things don't have the impact you thought they would, the God of the universe, the, your father who is in heaven and also in the secret place, smiles at you. And when you understand that, you are no longer an empty cup constantly needing to be filled by the approval and recognition of other people. You are a full cup ready to overflow with righteousness to the world around you. That's the difference. You're working from a place of recognition and applause rather than constantly working for that place of recognition and applause. So my prayer for us here at City Church, for our community here, my prayer is that each one of us would be so laser focused on the approval that is ours through Jesus that we become precisely the same person we are in secret in public. That there's no difference. Because in both places, we're working for the same person's approval. And that's not in jeopardy. We're not at risk of losing that because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And from that place, we can become these people of righteousness, where righteousness flows out of who we are, where we don't even realize that it's happening all of the time because we are so full of the approval of God himself, our Father who is in a secret place. Let me pray for us.
Father, I know in a lot of ways this is a, uh, is a deeply personal teaching for a whole lot of people. Jesus says in the passage, beware, which would seem to indicate that on some level, all of us are in danger of living for the approval of other people. And God, it's such an easy drug to live for. When we don't understand who we are in you, man, human approval and recognition and applause just feel so good to obtain. But God, at the end of the day, I I think all of us, if we were honest, would admit that we're kind of worn out by it. that it never really lasts, it never really endures, it never really does what we think it's gonna do in our hearts and our souls. But God, you tell us that you are the fountain of living water. You never run dry, you never run out. God, the flow of affirmation and recognition and applause, God, that is constant with you. Not because of who we are, because of who your son Jesus was. And so, God, for for those of us that maybe have, have never functionally drank from that fountain, God, I pray this morning for the first time we would. God, for a lot of us, I think the the constant exhaustion, the constant um, coming up lacking, the constant, um, God, just downright effort that we put into chasing the approval of other people. God, I think you're wanting to use all of that to point us to you. And, And so God, my prayer is that we wouldn't miss that opportunity. prayers that this morning we would go to the fountain of living water and we would drink and that we would become these full cups of approval that that overflow in lives of righteousness to the world around us that's our prayer that's what our world needs our world does not need more people that pretend to be good our world needs more people who are actually good And God, that goodness, that righteousness can only come from you. It can't be put on like a mask. So God, would you help us to drink from the fountain of living waters? That's our prayer. It's in your name. Amen.